0: Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events.
1: Firstly, um, for those of you I haven't met, my name is John Bradley. I'm the Secretary of the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning uh, in Victoria. Uh, and it's uh, my great pleasure uh, this evening to um, open this great event by Grattan Institute and Melbourne Energy Institute. Can I start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're gathering today, the Wurundjeri people, and to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging in a uh, genuine spirit of reconciliation. This is uh, such a a great um, event in that it brings together a lot of energy leaders, a lot of significant people, both uh, in front of us within the panel, but then also um, within the room, and I can see uh, many familiar faces here and many people invested in um, a, the energy transformation that's occurring and I was excited as we are in the Victorian Government about supporting that transformation. Uh, uh, on behalf of the Victorian Government, I uh, want to make sure that we um, provide our um, support to a discussion about what modernising the energy system will look like uh, and um, the themes of discussion that are occurring here today are just uh, critically important. We, we've been, obviously in Victoria, we've been very excited by the kind of um, opportunity. For new um, models of service delivery for customers. We're excited by the distributed energy exchange project that has been developed by participating in businesses like United Energy, looking at new platforms providing services to customers. We're excited by the opportunity to get better value and get the full um, uh, yield out of the smart meters which have been deployed uh, uh, ubiquitously across the Victorian network uh, and to sort of see the full benefits of that being delivered for customers. Again, initiatives in some of what we're doing, which are trying to um, progress the uh, frameworks that will allow the use of customer data and the sharing of customer data in a way which is still cognizant of um, privacy expectations and and restrictions. And so we know there are significant issues there to unpack. But apart from the technology opportunity that we see um, within the network and the transformation to a decentralised energy system particularly, and a decarbonised energy system, apart from those technology features we're also um, expecting that this is going to require as much discussion about the cultural change and the regulatory change um, that will be required to support um, that transition. Which is why it's been pleasing to see progress around some aspects of the regulatory framework like the Australian Energy Regulator's recent changes to a Demand Management Incentive Scheme, which provides direct um, rewards and incentives and penalties if there isn't sufficient support for demand management, demand-side measures, but it's also where we're really interested in the AusNet um, initiative, which is underway at the moment, to look at customer engagement and customer settlement models in establishing uh, new pathways for bringing customers into the decision-making process around the network of the future. So there is scope for um, optimism around some of those changes that are happening. I know from my past involvement um, in the energy sector that there is a fair amount of new thinking occurring, not just within the radical disruptors of the energy industry, but also within some of those parts of the industry that have for a long time been considered um, to be um, staid, old, boring utilities. There's a, a radical transformation occurring within as well. So. I just wanted to uh, take the opportunity to um, uh, welcome uh, attendees to the conference it's been my great pleasure to uh, kick us off this evening but now I'll hand over to the uh, much more debonair uh, Maxine McHugh who can uh, facilitate the proceedings this evening thanks very much
0: John, thank you very much, and uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, it's always nice to uh, uh, to be asked to MC the energy debates here. I haven't done one for for a while, but I'm I'm not surprised at the size of the audience here tonight. And I know from past experience, you always bring extremely well thought out uh, and considered questions to an event like this. So, um, as is always the the practice here, we leave a lot of time for for audience participation. Look, I, I share uh, John's um, uh, enthusiasm to a certain extent, um, and there is a, a vastly changing um, landscape um, out there. But uh, wouldn't it be nice to be able to say that um, you know there's a, set, a settled, enlightened view around what our energy or our energy mix, our energy policy should look like, and that um, all of the major players are you know moving in a progressive direction? Well. We don't live in that world quite yet, folks. Uh, Tony Wood was saying to me that he was in Canberra today, listening to uh, at the National Press Club to Josh Friedenberg, who he said gave a, a certainly a very solid address and made the point that he, you know, it was a time we should be moving beyond ideologies. Well, we await that moment. <laughs> But look, our focus tonight is quite precise, and it's about the uh, the question of whether we can have a sustainable electricity network. Uh, many of you would have seen the uh, the Grattan paper, um, which looks at the very high um, network costs and considers the question of really significant overinvestment um, in key states like New South Wales and the extent to which that is, um, that's driving um, high costs all along the line. So we've got a number of players tonight who we are going to uh into into this uh, this one for us, uh, we're going to hear from uh, David Blowers. David David is an energy fellow um, at the uh, the Grattan Institute, and uh, and brings a great deal of experience to this. Prior to Grattan, he spent three years working on energy and earth resources policy for the Victorian State Government. We'll hear from David in a moment. We also have Merrin York, who is the uh, chief executive of Powerlink Queensland, and um, and she brings about 25 years' experience to that role. Um, Um, She is also leading the business in its transformation to better align it with the external environment and with customer needs. And Meryn, I should also add, is a board member of Energy Networks Australia and chairs its regulatory and policy committee. We're then going to hear from Rob uh, Lewis. Rob is from Ausgrid, and he's responsible for the development and implementation of its corporate strategy, developing productive and collaborative relationships with the regulative community, um, and um, uh, has had... um, Again, a very long experience in the energy sector before joining Ausgrid. And then finally we'll hear from Andrew Stock. Um, Andrew is currently a councillor with the Climate, Com- Climate Council and also a president and past director of many energy companies, a board member of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and a chair of Resources and Energy Institute Advisory Boards um, at, the, univ- at the, sorry, the University of Adelaide and the University of Melbourne. So. Wealth of experience there with our speakers. I have asked them to do 10 minutes each, no more. Um, and then, as I say, we'll open it up to the room. Um, we would um, uh, be happy if you want to engage on social media or with comments you hear about. Our hashtags are at um, meiunimelb, at meiunimelb, and at Grattan Institute. So I think we'll get underway now and um, and ask David to um, to come up here as our first speaker. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Maxine, and thank you everyone for coming along this evening. Now, as Maxine mentioned, a couple of weeks ago, we at the Grant Institute released a report called Down to the Wire, (coughs) and it was about this. And what this shows is the amount of money that we spent on network infrastructure in the period between 2005 and 2015. And what I mean by network infrastructure is the selection of poles, wires, substations, transformers, everything that's needed to transport electricity from the power stations where it's generated to the homes and businesses where it's needed. And what we saw is over this period, the value of all that infrastructure increased from about $50 billion in 2005. To a bit over ninety billion dollars in 2015, and that is a forty billion increase in real terms. So that's taken into account inflation. That's a seventy percent increase in ten years. So this was the problem that we looked at, and we wanted to look at it and see how much of that extra forty billion that had been spent was deemed to be efficient. How much of it was going to deliver the extra services, the extra network that we really needed and how much of it would we deem it to be overspent or overinvested? And so what we did is we took a quite straightforward piece of analysis that looked at the growth in the value of all that infrastructure and compared it with the growth in a metric that we call usage. Now that usage, I don't want to get into huge amounts of detail about the calculations because as Maxine said, I've got 10 minutes. But that usage measure was an aggregation, so we added the percentage growth in customer numbers, obviously more customer connections for network businesses means that they need more grid, and also the percentage increase in maximum demand or peak demand. So obviously you need more network, the more electricity you're starting to shove through it. Okay. So this is the metric that we used, and what we found was that out of that 40 billion, we found up to $20 billion over that 10 year period having been spent. It doesn't look like it's been efficient. And as you'll notice from the chart that I show here, the majority of that spending occurred in just two states. We had up to $11 billion of extra spending in New South Wales and up to $7 billion extra spending in Queensland. Now, it's also just worth pointing out that. There was a little bit of extra spend that we found in other jurisdictions, and I will also point out Tasmania. Because while Tasmania, in terms of the total amount of money that we found there, was relatively small compared to Queensland and New South Wales, that $750 million actually accounts for quite a lot on a per customer basis. And so this gets the reason which is, well, why do we care? And there's two reasons why we care. And because in those three states, in New South Wales, in Queensland, and in Tasmania, those increases to the amount of infrastructure that there is has contributed to the increase in electricity prices that we've seen across those states during that period of time. Not only is that realistic now, but because this is infrastructure that has paid off over decades, that money is locked into people's bills for years to come. The second reason, and for me actually the more interesting reason from the point of view of going forward, is what it also does is it locks in an inefficient pricing incentive. We need to be realistic and now there is a genuine alternative to grid-based electricity and that is through customers choosing solar and batteries to reduce their reliance on the grid. Now if you have an overinflated grid price that is going to encourage more people that is efficient to adopt solar and batteries behind the meter so the only way you get an efficient outcome is if the actual cost of the grid reflects the actual value that it brings to consumers and if you've got extra cost that is not needed on top of that it is going to lead to an inefficient price incentive the sub-issue of this is what I've called up here, potentially death spiral outcomes. Now, I think the death spiral term is a bit hyperbolic, but what I mean by this is that as people reduce their reliance on the grid, it means on a per unit basis, the cost of grid based electricity goes up. And as the price of that goes up, it encourages more people to adopt non grid based electricity alternatives, and so the price goes up. The bottom line is that you get people who are solely reliant on grid-based energy paying more for their electricity, and most people are likely to be those who can least afford it. So this is why we care. And so the question really comes as to, well, why did this happen? And I've put five reasons up here. Due to time I'm not going to do it, I'm just going to look at the two reasons that are consistent Across the network businesses in those states where the extra spending occurred. The first one is they are all businesses that were at the time publicly owned, and the second one relating specifically to Queensland and New South Wales, where the majority of the money was spent, is that there were very strict reliability standards placed on the networks. Now, there are a number of reasons why we can talk about why publicly owned businesses might choose to spare more money. And I guess one of the ones that I'll focus on here is that sometimes governments and businesses have alternative objectives other than just providing efficient electricity. For example, a government might have procurement or labor market agreements that are not not consistent with the prices but are consistent with their objectives. The other one is that they may choose to prioritize alternative objectives, such as maintaining the liability or reducing the amount of blackouts. And this is effectively what happened with those reliability standards in response to some very high-profile blackouts that occurred in Queensland and in Sydney in the early to mid-part of the 2000s. And what happened was the state's government found it was the onus was on them to put very strict reliability standards on the businesses. The response from the businesses was that they had to spend money on infrastructure to reinforce their grids and in some cases replace current infrastructure at a time before that infrastructure's life was of an end. So that drives spending. Now, tacitly these governments seem to have, have Agreed that those reliability standards are too high at the time because some of the harshest standards have been quietly moved away or altered so that they are more flexible for network businesses to respond in a more cost-effective manner. So this now we come to the point is so what should we do about it? remember, one of our aims is to make sure that we get back to an efficient pricing process. So what we have done is we have looked at the issue from well. The party that is responsible for those extra spending that has occurred in the network is the party that should be responsible to fix it. There are two other principles that we adopted whilst coming up to this. One is that we wanted to minimize or nullify sovereign risk. So we wanted to nullify the impact of governments doing something to markets or to individual businesses which would scare off investment. And the second one was minimizing regulatory risk. We didn't want to do anything to the regulations, which effectively would mean higher costs for every single network of businesses because the costs imposed by regulations would be higher. I can go back in more detail on that if someone has a question later. So we came up with these two solutions, that those businesses that are still fully owned by the state government, those state governments should write down the value of that asset to buy the amount of the excess spending. Because government is the owner of that business, there is not the sovereignty risk issues that would be associated if they did it to a private company. For those uh, businesses which are owned in New South Wales, which have been recently privatised or part-privatised by the government, the government should use part of the proceeds of that sale to provide customers with a rebate which would take electricity prices back to an efficient level. And that, again, because it's not focusing on the businesses, avoids that sovereign and regulatory risk. And now finally, we'll get onto the, the final tweets, which is about moving forward. But one of the things I will say is that there is a good news story here, and what has happened is it appears in the latest determination, and from some of the noises that we've had out of the next round of determinations that are coming, is that capital spending by the network businesses generally appears to be at a reasonable level at the moment. So we wouldn't expect those cost blowouts that we saw last decade necessary to occur immediately, and that is in part because I, it seems that both the regulator and the uh, businesses themselves have recognised this as an issue. But there are still certain issues that um, we still need to tackle going forward, and these are issues and questions that need answering. The first up is capital. It's been long been recognised that. Customers getting prices that encourages them to reduce their electricity use at peak times will therefore encourage less network build. This is now the fifth report that we've done where we've recommended that we need to speed up cost-reflective pricing. And it is an important reform. We're not getting into how it should be done or what it should look like, but it is obviously something that is really important to try and keep costs down going into the future. The second one is about future stranding risk, because as we seek to decarbonise our economy, we're obviously going to be faced with an issue that certain assets become stranded. The best example is, uh, or an example would be the Latrobe Valley, where we're aware that in the not-too-distant future, we're likely to have (coughs) no coal-fired power stations left there. And there will still be a transmission network attached there. Now, my understanding is that transmission network won't need to paid off anymore, The theory behind it is that we could end up having assets there that are no longer used, but we still have to pay for them. Under the current model, the customer bears all that risk and has to pay for those assets without it. We question whether or not that risk should be shared and that the network businesses should share part of that risk and pay some of the cost if those assets become stranded before the right time is met. I will leave you with three other questions that we have going that also need to be resolved going forward. The first one, and I'm not saying that it does, is that do existing regulations over the central infrastructure. in a world where we have a very uncertain future, uh, new build might not be the best option. So we have to look at the regulating framework to see whether it's still fit for purpose going forward in terms of encouraging the right and efficient amount of the infrastructure going forward. Secondly is how can we efficiently reconfigure the grid away from a situation where we generally had centralized generation while we've got more distributed generation? That is going to lead need a lot more transmission assets, and that is going to cost money, and we need to do it efficiently. And finally, we need to develop the process and the procedures and the regulations that sit behind individuals and communities going on the grid. It is already economic for some people and some areas to go and we haven't developed the rules and regulations that sit behind that. So it is imperative that this happens. I leave you with a final point which is making sure that consumers face efficient prices now even though you might do it artificially through a rebate will set us up for the future in terms of dealing, making sure that the price signals for consumers are there. But there are still a heap of questions that need to be answered and policy decisions that need to be made. Get them wrong, and we can see history repeating again in terms of increasing spend and increasing growth. Thank you.
0: David, thank you on two counts for the content and keeping to time. Now, Meryn, if you would. Thank you.
3: Well, good evening, everyone, and thanks to Tony and the Grattan Institute for inviting me along here this evening to share some of my thoughts uh, and participate in the discussion about this really important topic. I I totally agree with the thoughts that David's expressed uh, in terms of customer prices and that it's really important that whatever happens, prices for consumers deliver value to those consumers. So wherever we're um, providing services, we need to make sure that we are thinking about the consumer uh, delivery of that, because what we know is that electricity is an enabler of our lifestyles, and it also enables the economy. So when we don't get that right, um, then we're going to have adverse outcomes. So one of the things that we've been doing out at Powerlink, and just so everybody's clear, we're one of the Queensland businesses that David was referring to, so we're a government-owned business, we're the transmission business in Queensland, for those that don't know what Powerlink does. Um, We have reduced this year, so in um, this financial year, our electricity transmission price by a third. So that's a big reduction, uh, despite, um, if we agreed with um, David in the analysis, despite what might have been past investment, In the network, we've actually reduced our transmission price by a significant component. And going forward, we're looking at um, price increases within CPI over the remainder of the five-year regulatory term. So there are things that we can do within the existing regulatory compact without trying to break it by doing things like um, artificially writing down assets that were invested in in good faith. Uh, And these outcomes don't come about by accident they actually come about by deliberate activity by network businesses to change the way in which we're thinking about the delivery of network services. So I'm just going to touch on a couple of things um, that David referred to. Uh, And first of all, just what was going on in Queensland in um, those mid-2000 periods uh, that led to some of that investment? And I'd ask you to think about... If you were in the situation of the business, and it doesn't matter whether it's really a private business or a public business, we're all making the same decisions. There's safeguards in place. Government businesses in Queensland were subject to the Hilma competition reforms, so there's safeguards in place that ensure that we have an independent board and that anything that the government wants us to do is very transparent. Other than that, we make our decisions in essentially the same way as private businesses do. We have a board, and and they are subject to the corporation's law, so they have to take into account all the various frameworks. We get the same whack, and I think you guys made that point. The the whack is the same whether we're private or public, Um, so essentially the same frameworks apply, and we should have the same incentives as private businesses. So what was going on in mid-2000s? Uh, we had a five-day period in January 2004. Um, there were a series of very powerful storms, about 120,000 people off supply, some of them for up to 34 hours. So really significant um, disturbances to people's uh, electricity supply, and I'm talking about people in Brisbane or Greater Brisbane. So it would be like you know, if you live in a suburb near here, that you're off supply for 34 hours. You could be. So it's pretty significant. We also had had periods of really strong growth uh, in electricity demand, particularly peak demand, but also energy used by consumers. And a lot of that was being driven by uh, residential consumers and air conditioning growth. So we have very hot weather, particularly in January and February in Queensland, uh, and that does drive uh, people to install air conditioners and that does drive electricity usage. So over the period from 2001 to 2006, statewide, we had experienced 31% growth. So that's year-on-year growth adding up to 31%. And in Southeast Queensland itself, in that period, we had had growth of 46%. So put yourself in that scenario and think about how you're going to develop something like a demand forecast. Are you going to assume the demand is going to drop off or are you going to assume it's going to continue to grow? Maybe not at the same rate, but for those of you that are involved in forecasting, most forecasting is done by a regression analysis of your history. So history is a good predictor of the future, and the more history you have, the more you can use that um, for predicting your future. So now I just want you to think about that because I don't have a perfect crystal ball. All I can do in a business like Powerlink is make the best decision that I can make based on the information that I have available to me at the time. Now, that's different to the way in which things might be assessed after the fact, down the track, when things are different. So at the time uh, of 2004, when the reliability standards in Queensland were changed, there was a government inquiry off the back of those outages and that very strong growth as to whether there had been enough investment in the grid. Uh, And the government inquiry found that reliability in South East Queensland was was worse than equivalent other jurisdictions, that reliability in the rest of Queensland was the the worst performing end of all distributors uh, throughout Australia, and that the average outage duration time was typically twice that of customers in other jurisdictions. So if you put all that together and you think about, "Mm, in those circumstances, what decision Is going to be made, then there is necessarily going to be investment. You've got your crystal ball out and you've looked at your regression, you've had 46% growth, are you going to assume that growth's going to turn around and drop off, or are you going to assume that growth is going to continue to occur? Well, I think we all know the answer to that, Um, but I don't really want to talk so much about the past and why those decisions were made. Because we are in a very different place uh, going forward. And I think uh, the solutions that are available to us now are quite different to the solutions that existed 12 years ago when some of those decisions were made. So, how do we achieve a 30% reduction in our transmission price when we've already got that investment on our books? It's not about writing down the assets, there's actually other solutions that we can focus on to make sure that we are delivering valued outcomes for customers. And as the CEO of Powerlink, that's been my very strong focus all of the time that I've been CEO is to make sure that we are not investing more than we need to to deliver the services that will make sure we still have that reliable supply in Queensland that will enable the economy and make sure that people have um, the lifestyles that they need to live their lives appropriately So we've obviously looked at forecasting. Um, Your investment—it's a key input to investment decision making. So rather than thinking, "Okay, the the past is a good predictor of the future," if we look back now, we can see that there was a discontinuity in 2009, uh, and we can see that quite clearly. So we now work through a process where we get broad input into our forecasting process. Uh, We run a series of workshops to get input from a range of stakeholders so we can make sure we're taking into account the latest information. We do a 10-year-ahead forecast and we update it every six months so that our decision-making is always based on the latest information that we have. And we look at things like, when we get the stakeholders together, what is rooftop solar penetration looking like and what do we expect it to be in the future? What is the customer response to price? Are they getting the right signals to make the right decisions? Or are they going to make decisions based on other set of tariffs, which might not necessarily be the most economic decision really overall, but it's a decision they're going to make. So we need to be pragmatic and take it into account. We look at energy efficiency changes. We look at what technology enablement's occurring. We look at edge of grid changes. Are people, real, are people going to be leaving the grid and at what rate? What's the economic look, outlook look like? Uh, what's battery and electric vehicle take-up going to be? And what are the um, tariffs and other things that will help the transition to electric vehicles in the future not create another peak demand? So what can we put in place to make sure that it doesn't create another peak and that we're u- better utilising the assets that already exist? So we get this broad range of input, uh, and I can assure you while we do that, it doesn't make forecasting necessarily any easier because the external environment is changing at such a rapid pace that we have to do that to try to keep up with the changes and to try to put our best foot forward uh, in terms of the forecast because it's a a really key input. So we have had um, a forecast that's been flat the last five years, and what that translates into is that we really have no additional uh, investment in the network, so we aren't adding to the network at all, and we haven't been adding to the network for over five years. So that's part of how we achieve a 30% reduction going forward. We've also had a fundamental change in grid planning, and um, John mentioned it uh, earlier in his introduction, we actually need to have a cultural change. And so we've been looking at how can we change the way in which our engineers think? How can we change the way in which they think about what's of value to customers? So if anybody's uh, an engineer here, I'm an engineer, uh, when we're trained, what we look at is, is certainly thinking about what is the customer perspective and how do we make sure we're delivering value for customers, but we do it from our own perspective. What we've done is flip that around and we actually get our engineers to engage with customers first before they think about what the answers are or what the solutions are. Let me tell you, that's not necessarily a comfortable place for engineers to get into, but it's been really valuable and it's part of their toolkit now where they go out, instead of going out with the problem and the solutions, which would be um, the typical thing we would have done in the past, we actually go out with the problem And we get input before we start to craft the solutions for these things. So we're getting input from our customers. We're running geographic area forums where we get all of the key um, customers in that area to come in and tell us what they're actually doing and how they see the grid and whether they see the grid delivering value to them, what level of reliability they want, and is there any consensus view on how this thing should develop and what they're willing to pay for. So we actually take that into account in the way in which we develop um, things like our reinvestment. So assets do reach the end of life and maybe the assets out to the La Valley will be at the end of life by the same time the power stations are at end of life. That's generally how things line up uh, if you look historically. Uh, but how do we make sure that when we reinvest, we're, re- we're reinvesting for what the future grid need is. And that's where we're really making sure we're getting that input and we're thinking differently and we're looking for different solutions because the technology that is there now enables us to do different solutions, which will be more economic or will shift the risk balance so that we're not investing in long-lived assets if we don't think they're going to be required for that long life. So that's been a huge change for our engineers, um, but overall, I do want to assure you that we do think about um, our customers Uh, While we don't necessarily agree with all the inputs in the report or the conclusions, uh, we are very focused on making sure that customers do get a better value service in the future. And if anybody here um, does pay an electricity bill in Queensland, and I'm not sure whether there will be, um, I hope you've appreciated the 30% reduction in your transmission component of your bill. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Maren, and Rob, if you will. Thank you.
4: Thank you and, um, and thank you very much for the invite to come and, and talk to you all tonight and, and thank Tony and, and David for the work they did on the, on the report. I must say it's a slightly nerve wracking experience to come and talk to such a big group of people when you're representing a, a business which is accused of uh, over-investing by I think five and a half billion dollars, so, uh, but I'll try and put um, some context to that. Ausgrid we are uh, a one point, we we look after 1.7 million customers in the Sydney and Hunter uh, regions of New South Wales uh, we were privatized uh, or partially privatized by the New South Wales state government uh, in December 2016 so the business has been operating as a, a privately run business for for now just under 18 months and whilst the energy industry is going through its transformation we as a business are going through through ours and that's quite a, a difficult experience for, for our business because we've, we've come from a very big uh, business and we're downsizing and, and looking for efficiencies uh, all the time. Uh, I won't spend too long uh, going through what I don't agree with in the Grattan report because I think, as we all know, turkeys uh, don't generally vote for Christmas and I don't want to be uh, accused of being a, a, a turkey on this one, but I will uh, call uh, into question a few of the sort of observations Uh, And I think, um, and I won't repeat some of the things that Marion said which I think were really relevant, but I I think the context in decision making is really important and and I'll I'll repeat a couple of the things, but not too many. When we look at the time in which uh, that huge peak of investment that happened in the Sydney area, which was between 2008 and 2014, we had very much the same context. We had some pretty bad uh, reliability outcomes, we had some ageing assets, we had some safety issues, Uh, we had the uh, the AMC, uh, the federal and state governments very concerned about reliability across the Sydney area. we would had uh, outages in, in New York uh, which were, were terrifying to, 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 to people, to, 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 uh, the idea that we could see Sydney go black uh, and I think very wisely people took the decision that it was, uh, it was necessary to make, make those investments. Now, since that happened, peak demand didn't arrive and um, I think we could quite categorically say that if we'd known that that was the case we would have made slightly different investments but we certainly wouldn't have invested $5.5 billion uh, less. That investment was needed and necessary and prudent, and that was confirmed by the AAR, uh, their consultants, and reviews that we ourselves have done both prior to and since uh, that investment. The other thing to say is the wide divergence in asset-based growth uh, that we've seen in Australia has also been observed in countries like the UK. Uh, And they don't have this differential between privately and publicly owned businesses. They're all privately owned. So I can think we can see quite clearly that it's a lot more complicated than just saying government over-invests and private businesses don't. I want to talk a little bit more about what the future holds for our our industry more broadly. Uh, And I think at a time like this when we're going through a transition to uh, what we hope and expect will be a much lower carbon economy, It's very important that we have the right investment uh, incentives in place for businesses to to make the investments that will deliver that lower carbon environment. Our view is very clear that even uh, in an environment, asset write-downs happen voluntarily. That creates a a lack of trust in the concept of an asset value, and that really undermines investment confidence. If we're going to make that transition to a a lower carbon economy in in an affordable an affordable way and also make the investments for reliability. We really need to ensure that investors have confidence and that they can fund those assets that are required at a, a reasonable cost. But much more than that, it's not just about minimising the cost of funding assets, it's minimising the assets that you need to invest in to make that transition. And that in, involves in making sure that we get the rules right, the, the framework right, the regulatory arrangements right. Uh, in order to ensure that we invest assets as cheaply and efficiently as possible, and then we can go and fund them (laughs) as cheaply and efficiently as possible. And I want to talk about that. And why is the grid so important for the decarbonisation journey that we're on? I think there's a few really key points that we need to make about what the grid provides to us as an economist and a society. Firstly is that utility scale renewable generation is is still, and forecasted to, to remain to be, three to four times cheaper than distributed resources. And so if we're gonna do this transition in a cost effective way, we really need to make sure that we've got a grid that can take that cheap, cheap or efficient renewable energy to customers. Secondly, I think it's really important to remember that when you as a customer build your own off-grid system, you're building to your own peak demand. If you put those peak demands together, share them across a the network, you don't have to build to the sum of everyone's peak demand because people don't consume energy at the same time. So you get a lot more efficient use of your Infrastructure, sharing infrastructure, as we see so often, delivers a lot cheaper outcome. Distributed resources, the, one, you know, the ones that we're seeing much, many, many more of, they also provide much greater value to us as an economy when they're shared, when they're sitting on a grid. A distributed battery can provide frequency support and stability to a network outside the bounds of the property that it sits in. So we generate more value from that. The other thing is electric vehicles will inevitably be a, a huge growth in the amount of energy demand that we have in our system. And without a grid, it's just simply not possible to generate and store sufficient energy to, 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 fund, to, 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 to supply your home and also your vehicle. So the grid will be here, and the grid is a necessary part of, of the future and a, good, a necessary part of making the decarbonisation cheaper. It's at much lower cost as well. We've got a very high level of reliability, you know, hours off supply a year, uh, and I think if you look at the, the lifetime costs of being connected to the grid, you're talking about $15,000 over the entire life of your, of your connection. Whereas if you look at the, the cost of providing your own system, it's, it's over, it's over $100,000. And that's even taking into account future cost reductions in battery and solar technology. So we know that the grid is here to stay. We know that it delivers great value. But we also know that it's more expensive than it has to be. And I think we all are quite cognizant of the fact that we need to do better on that. So I'll talk about a couple of things that, that we can do and we need to collectively do if we're going to deliver that grid at a cheaper cost. And I think these have been touched on by David and Merin. Tariff reform or pricing reform, was, as I think we should start calling it, because tariffs tend to, tend to put people off. Everyone agrees we need to move to cost-reflective prices. Uh, they're not cost-reflective at the moment. We collect our revenue based on how many electrons you consume. And that bears no relation whatsoever to the costs of providing a grid. The cost of providing a grid, your peak demand, and whether you're connected or you're not. How many electrons you could consume, really absolutely irrelevant. But moving from that system to a system that reflects <coughs> the costs of consumption will create those that will pay less and those that will pay more. And politically, that's a very difficult change to make. But put simply, the choice is this. We either have p- pricing that encourages and rewards consumption and investment decisions which deliver a lower cost outcome for the system, or that rewards investment in any sort of DER at any time, and dissuades customers from using energy where there's lots of capacity in the system and often lots of uh, renewable generation available, so during the middle of the day, for example. We have pricing that encourages new business models like demand management, aggregators, peer-to-peer trading, all of those things that will really get the, 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 the most out of distributed resources, or we have a pricing that smears costs across the whole system. At the moment we're in the latter of those two environments and we're not getting the best out of our system. And I think as as, as an industry we have an accountability and a responsibility to do better on that front. The second thing that I think is a real challenge for our regulatory framework, and I think the AAR's taking a lead role in thinking about this and we want to help them on that, um, is is the the idea of bespoke local solutions. So mini-grids, standalone power systems, which can deliver a community outcome at a lower cost and connecting it, with very long infrastructure, a lot of infrastructure costs to rural communities. Now at the moment we have postage stamp pricing and obviously we're not, I don't think anyone advocates against that, but we should have a framework in place that allows us to make those investments, disconnect communities from, from the grid, give them the same reliable uh, service and actually reduce the total costs that are shared over everyone. At the moment that's quite difficult to do, but the technology's there and we wanna be, be using that technology more. I think the thing that comes out from all this is customers and how customers respond to to the different uh, changes that are happening in the energy system and I think one of the things that I reflect on and it's not a a moment of um, of, um, uh, inspiration for me, I think I I took it from the changes that the AER are making to the framework, the AER has always had a framework that tries to mimic some of the the characteristics of a private market where you have that, that drive towards productive efficiency and in some ways allocative efficiency as well. And it's quite an impressive framework. We we, we get rewarded for doing the right things by customers. But one of the things that we don't do, that the private uh, or non-monopoly industries do, do, is they get to know their customers. And we haven't had an incentive to get to know our customers in the same way as a business that's not regulated. And now I think under the new framework the AR is putting in place, we speak to our customers much more and we learn from them. And that's been quite a, a difficult journey for us because we're not good at it but we're learning to get better at it, and we're also learning that we are learning more from them uh, than we expected we could. And some of the issues that we talk about in terms of changing frameworks, which are often equity issues, where you have a, a change in the status quo that has winners and losers, actually customers can really help us think through how to manage those changes, because they're the ones who are exposed to them. So it's actually a very, perfect timing. It's actually a very complex, system but the outcomes are very simple we know what customers want they want affordable reliable and sustainable energy at Ausgrid we're very focused on that we've cut our employees by 44% prices are 20% lower and uh, our operational costs are 20% lower but we need to do more than that we need to work with our customers to make sure that the grid of the future delivers for them and delivers an affordable and reliable transition to our sustainable future so thank you for listening.
0: Thanks, Rob, and Andrew, if you'd give us your presentation. Thank you.
5: Well, good evening, and um, just to one correction for the record, I'm no longer a director of the CEFC. My five-year term finished last August. Um, um, So, anyway, um, tonight we've heard quite a lot about regulation uh, for these assets that deliver power to us from distant places. I'm not going to talk about regulation and those issues. I want to talk about some of the trends which we've heard a little bit from Rob about from Rob, that I think will challenge those regulatory structures at their very core. Um, there are trends that I think, from my experience in the industry and the engagement with the players in the industry that I have, trends that will accelerate rapidly um, in the next 10 to 15 years. And they fall into three categories. Firstly, the disruptive technologies, particularly solar PV batteries, and the Internet of Things. Secondly, how are we going to build resilience to increasing weather severity and extremes from climate change that's accelerating? And thirdly, the rate of change itself, and the ability for regulators to react, let alone proact, and how that will impact consumers. So firstly, the technology disruption itself, solar PV, and batteries amplified by the Internet of Things. Um, Most of us are now aware we've got over 1.7 million Australian homes with solar PV on their roofs, and today that collectively generates over 7,000 megawatts uh, of electricity. Fourteen years ago, the number of households with PV was about 4,000 – 4,000 to 1.7 million in 14 years. Um, And the megawatts generated was four. Dramatic change. No one could have anticipated it. But if you looked at what was going on in the industry, and I was in the industry at that time, uh, we did predict that by about 2012, 2015, PV would be grid competitive and we would see a virtuous circle. And that's been driven by, uh, that virtuous circle is driven by um, dramatically lowering of costs as scale increases. Um, In addition, in Australia, because of things we've heard about, we saw increased supply costs to consumers and that, together with government incentives and a community that actually wanted to see some action on climate change, I believe, saw that widespread adoption of PV at the household level, which is now flowing through to the commercial sector at a rate of knots and has subsequently flowed through because of the scale advantages to grid-scale PV, you know, the multi-tens of megawatt plants that are now being built in very sunny areas of which we have copious amounts thereof. Um, Let's talk about batteries now, because batteries, I think, are on the same trend, and arguably even more disruptive than solar PV when it comes to networks. In 2016, the number of systems in Australia was just over (coughs) 6,000. Cast your mind back to solar PV systems um, about 14 years ago. 2017, the number of battery systems doubled to 20,000. By 2018, there's an estimated 33,000, so we're seeing dramatic growth. And the cost structure of manufacturing batteries shows the same learning curve trends that solar PV did two decades ago, one decade ago, and today. We are seeing this trend start to roll out and accelerate. Um, So, if household batteries were to follow the same PV experience curves, which I believe they will, we will arguably potentially see over half of households that have solar on their roof have batteries in their systems behind the meter um, by the end of next decade. Um, Upwards potentially of 1 to 1.5 million homes. That's transformational. I mean, the numbers are very hard to predict. But it could be a traumatic implication, not only for networks, and, but also for the gen-tailer retailer model that supplies most of us with our electricity today. Networks because solar households with batteries draw minimally off the grid. That's my experience um, through this past summer. They're more likely to be net generators most of the time, rather than net consumers. <laughs> And tail is because once consumers start to use very little power off the grid, not only do networks carry an exposure, but so do the retailers that we see selling us with energy and their margin. Um, batteries are not just deployable, at um, obviously at the household level, the same small batteries go into big units like the Hornsdale 100-megawatt system that was commissioned in less than six months from woe to go. And that system, um, as evidenced by AEMO's analysis, demonstrates its potential to provide the sorts of services that a year ago people didn't think were possible. Um, A recent report by AEMO showed that that system can respond 100 times faster than a conventional steam turbine to um, requests for frequency adjustment, and with far, far greater precision far, far greater precision. And I would urge anyone that's sceptical about the power of batteries at grid scale to go and look at that AEMO report that came out uh, in the past week on Hornsdale. That's important because we have a time warp in thinking in Australia when it comes to new technologies, which is potentially exposing us as a nation, I believe, to very significant exposures. For example, um, most of what Hornsdale can deliver at the grid scale doesn't get paid for, and can't get paid for under the current regulatory structure for what's called frequency control ancillary services, because it responds in milliseconds, not six seconds or more, which is the shortest time frame that gets compensated currently under FCAS arrangements. Grid batteries have dramatic consequences for networks, too, because they can be put across the network. They can be distributed anywhere from a few tens of kilowatts to hundreds of kilowatts to megawatt scale. And increasingly, as PV goes across the network in our houses, um, we will be net generators a lot of the time. That energy has to go somewhere, and batteries are the ideal place for it to go so that later on in the evening, as we turn on our air conditioners when it's hot, we can redraw from that. um, And the network will see two-way flows, but at at a grid scale, they can also provide dramatic improvements to things like um, stability, power flows, inertia, and security. Internet of Things is the third thing I want to just touch on. Consumers today have got the power with those sorts of technologies at their their, um, fingertips, and with a phone app to control how their house uses electricity, when it pulls off the grid, when it sends to the grid, what level of charge it wants on its battery, whether or not it islands the house – all of these things are possible with a phone app, or will be within a matter of months, if not years. And that's a very powerful driver, what consumers can now do, and will increasingly be able to do. The second major trend is building network resilience to extreme weather increasingly accelerating as a result of climate change. We've seen a massive amount of political energy go into so-called reliability through discussion about the National Energy Guarantee. And yet reliability at the wholesale level, that's generation, accounts for only 1% to 2% of the outages that consumers see and feel. The other 96, 98% comes from failures in distribution and transmission caused by... Storms, bushfires, extreme weather, um, heat. Where do they come from? Accelerating climate change. So, what did New York do post Hurricane Sandy? They invested, um, heavily, well, significantly, to slice and dice its grid into interlinked microgrids with local generation and storage, which Rob touched on. Effectively, smart mini grids that can island communities put power generation and storage where it's used, not thousands of kilometres away. So if you do get extreme weather events, yes, some parts of the grid may go down, but the whole grid doesn't go down. Communities can become much more resilient. And in the US today, there's over 160 microgrids, over 1600 megawatts of capacity, and a number that's forecast to triple by 2020. We are doing some experimentation in Australia around that. and. Several network owners are experimenting with storage and microgrids. Horizon Power in WA, AusNet um, in Victoria, at Mooral Bark, uh, and South Australian Power Networks. But it's, it's very much at the preliminary uh, stage and small scale. The third trend is the rate of change itself. And I think this is the most fundamental challenge facing, particularly, the network sector, but generally, the electricity industry. Um, rather than be – because this industry needs to see regulation that's proactive and forward-looking uh, and ideally gets in ahead of the change. Now, that's a pretty big ask. Um, networks are largely regulated by rules set by groups like the, now the um, Energy Security Board, the AMC and the AR. Um, rules and regulations and consultation periods that take a long time and ultimately respond, in theory, to us as consumers, but in reality, I think, to more the whims of politicians. And I guess if you wanted to see um, just how out of touch, in my view, some politicians are with the reality and pace of technical change in this industry, um, we just need to look at some of the comments that were made in the last few months about Hornsdale. That asset, and that decision by South Australia to invest in that asset by encouraging it to come forward at such a pace, um, have been ridiculed um, by people that, in my view, should know a lot better, analogies drawn with the big prawn, the big banana. And I don't think those sort of public comments by leading politicians do anyone a service in this industry. Furthermore, they demonstrate, in my view, a fundamental failure of understanding of the rate of change that's going on in this industry now. And given that ultimately the AEMC responds to political pressure as does the ESB, it's about time that I think we ought to hear more from politicians, less about reliability and wholesale energy supply, and more about the technological changes that are taking place in this industry that will transform it. Uh, in our lifetime. And that te- that's not just my view. Um, if we look at um, reports that have been done, the Future Grid Forum, for example, identified four scenarios. Two of those scenarios, which they called new customer choices and centralised to localised, they concluded could have the most di- disruptive impacts such as the elements of the existing economic regulatory frameworks would be either significantly challenged or may need to be fundamentally rethought. It's why others, and I just pulled out some quotes from McKinsey's from a study they did a couple of years ago concluded that one technology, the batteries that I was talking about earlier, battery storage if deployed at scale, could overturn business as usual for electricity markets with the potential to upend industry structures, both physical and economic, that have defined power markets for a century or more. Pretty fundamental statement um, from a group like McKinsey's. Um, but I think that's what we f- probably feel in our guts is going on for those of us that see this change happening. So I think there's actually an opportunity to take a very forward-looking view about the regulation of networks. We've heard a little bit tonight about how networks are in a almost in the box seat if they were allowed to play. And when I say allowed to play, um, Rather than putting pressure on networks to reduce costs, which is fine, let's put at least the same pressure or a lot more on networks to help empower consumers to make good decisions for both networks and consumers and I think one thing that may be worth thinking about is um, enabling networks to through the investments they make in grid storage, um, demand management management across their grids and networks um, through um, potentially even being able to interface with customers. Today, they're not allowed to do that. Yes, they are okay to go out and consult with consumers and I guess try and form a view about what consumers are thinking and what that means for their business. But given that in most states of Australia now we see quite high retail margins, and Grattan's previously issued reports on that, um, and potentially an oligopoly of retail players, um, maybe it's time to bring a bit more competition into the retail space. It needs to be fitted in a way that um, doesn't empower the networks too much. Um, But I think we're up for a bit more competition in this space um, for consumers to benefit. And if we truly want to leverage the distributed capabilities of solar, storage, the internet of things, demand management, microgrids, mini grids, all of these things, then I think networks have got a lot, lot bigger role to play in the energy and electricity system of our future than they're currently empowered to do. Thank you.
0: Thank you all to our our, um, our guests there for being uh, so succinct and and giving us lot to uh, to chew over in the next uh, half hour. David, can I before we come out to the audience, can I just say to you um, to go back to where you started? I didn't detect any great enthusiasm for your conclusion about the write down of assets. Um, from the panel. From, not
2: not what from, what from come the come panel. Out. Well, not from
0: from the panel certainly. <laughs> um,
2: no, look, and and that's. I think that's kind of understandable. We know where the, the network businesses sit on this. I think that I, I still go back to the point that um, both Marin and Rob have raised a couple of issues which explain why that excess investment occurred. I think both reliability standards and uh, this huge growth in demand that we expected to come that never did. Or maybe not huge, but we expected growth in demand that never actually occurred. That still doesn't alter the fact that in terms of reliability stuff is a a judgment in terms of whether or not we overdid it in terms of responding to reliability. And it's actually a very interesting message that we've got now after we've had such reliability problems in South Australia, the focus of reliability on the generation. Well, the consequence of focusing on reliability is that you get a lot of extra spend and that means a lot of extra cost for consumers. So obviously people have got to measure that in terms of saying, right, we, we prioritized reliability, we delivered that, and we come to this point, we go, well, maybe we didn't need all that reliability. I think the second point about the demand is, yes, everyone, up to 2009, everyone expected demand to keep growing. And even post-2009, where it didn't go, people expected demand to keep growing. And all of a sudden, I think we got to about 2013, 2014, and everyone went, our oh, demand's not growing. Peak demand's not growing. And so, obviously, the... That is an understandable response. We did look at the demand issue and we did feel that it could explain part of this stuff to a certain extent, but not certainly not the whole of it. And I think the other thing is that even though that demand didn't occur, the spending still did and we're still paying for it even though we're not using it. And if we're still spend, paying for it and we're not using it, it, we go back to that point about have we got an efficient price that we're paying for the grid now. Because Andrew's point that he's just made is that there are incentives there and there are technologies coming in board that people are going to take. It is important that as a whole, the amount of money that we spend on the grid, on behind the meter technologies, is an efficient amount that means that costs overall are minimized for consumers. And at the moment, if you're pushing an inefficient price signal, even though You know, we might have expected that demand to come, we are going to get inefficient outcomes and that is why we have argued quite strongly that we should look at reducing prices through either uh, write down for the publicly owned businesses or through a rebate to ensure that customers get not only low prices but prices that provide an incentive to adopt the right mix of grid-based electricity and non-grid-based electricity.
0: Okay. All right. We will um, uh, um, come out to the audience now. Let's see. Well, we've got microphones um, in various parts of the room. Um, We might go up here. Yep.
6: Thank you. Hi, David Brockway. I was previously Chief of Energy Technology in CSIRO, and a question for David Blowers David, have you got any comments to offer on the um, potential for the duplication of BassLink in the context of um, climate change possibly causing um, droughts in Tasmania? Uh, But somewhat from the opposite perspective, I guess you'd say, the opportunity for Tasmania to... Um, the the battery for Australia rather than um, something like Snowy Hydro with pumped hydro in, in Tasmania where they have all the a lot of the infrastructure in place already. So would you comment on the opportunities for or, the, or your view of uh, any value for a new or duplication of Basslink, bearing in mind the current one's been down for some time, of course.
2: So, so my my understanding of the outcome of the Tamlin review or the Tamlin paper that looked at the possibility of BassLink 2, it kind of looked at the the cost-benefit analysis of it and suggested that it wasn't necessarily the best idea in the world. Now, obviously, um, there is a scenario where you can potentially see a lot more, not necessarily hydro, but a lot more wind coming on board In Tasmania that could help service that uh, extra BassLink going across to maybe either South Australia or Victoria but I think we'll come back to the cost-benefit analysis any piece of transmission now as well as we've talked a lot about how transmission helps supply customers but transmission also acts as an alternative to generation so when you look at BassLink you have got to look at it in comparison to those generation options and other pieces of transmission that might exist on the, the mainland. So I think that there, there is the potential there, but there is a lot of potential across the country. We've talked about renewable energy zones and the ability of putting new transmission lines into areas which also have very strong uh, renewable potential. And that, from a cost benefit analysis, could be far better than having BASLINK. So I think going back, it's. In terms of the environmental impact, there are a range of options out there, and there are a range of options out there that may well be better options than having a second BassLink. And I think the other thing to remember is that BassLink also acts, uh, given what happened with BassLink a couple of years ago, and what I think happened a couple of weeks ago, I understand that BassLink went down again for it's
3: Still down. Is
2: it still down? All right, it's still down. Um, So obviously there is a certain extent as well that there is a risk involved in, in this, but there is a risk to a certain extent with any interconnector and any piece of transmission.
0: Let me see. Can I go over to that part of the room? Um, or
6: uh, A number of uh, people uh, aiming at going off-grid talk about uh, the fact that they can store enough energy to keep themselves going at night, etc. That's fine in the summer. In the winter, those people... Are still off grid, but they're relying on gas, and hence producing a lot of CO two. Can this sort of combination of solar and batteries actually work in the the winter when we don't have as much sun and probably not as much wind either?
5: Well, I, I can yep. touch on that if you like. Um, not that I'm I would claim to be an expert in these things, so. Please take my comments in that regard, that precursor. But um, I think you make a good point. I mean, I wasn't in my address talking about going off grid. What I was saying was that I think that there will be a lot of people that put batteries in. And they will get a lot smarter about how they run their houses. And I do think that technologies will change. So yes, particularly in Victoria, um, um, most people still use gas for you know, heating through winter. Um, The number of degree days is sort of going down year on year, by the way, heating degree days, and has been as long as I've been in the energy game, certainly for the last two decades. But nevertheless, you know, it does get cold in Victoria. So um, not to say you go off-grid, but there will be significant periods of time during summer when the typical PV system today, which is six or seven kilowatts on someone's roof, will be a net generator. There may be the odd day when they draw off the grid because they might have a big air conditioning system, a reverse cycle that'll cool the house. But there'll be a lot of days, particularly in Victoria, when you don't, haven't historically at least got the long heat waves that some other states get, where you'll be a net generator. And one of the things I think will be of benefit to everyone would be if networks that are, the, if you like, the PowerPoint that we plug into all of us could get the benefit from that rather than the retailers who currently take an arbitrage today between what they buy from people injecting in the grid and what they resell at um, to the person next door who doesn't have solar. So, um, Because I think networks with distributed storage, um, arguably a much better um, understanding of what's going on around that particular area, can optimise – put it this way – are in the best position to optimise the value that's created through all that. And to share that, and then you've got to have a basis on which that value is shared, not all captured, obviously. But I think that has a lot more potential than trying to do it through retailers, because retailers don't have everyone in the street. They might have this person there and one, you know, three blocks away. Um, so I think um, not necessarily going off grid, but optimising staying on grid for everyone's
4: benefit.
0: Robert, do you want to comment on that? You're
4: not yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to comment, thank you. Um, we've done a lot of work on this, because obviously it's, it's one of those uh, elements that we look at as a future risk for uh, our business and, and the industry. A um, Couple of things, you know, one, the cost at the moment of having a system that's large enough to give you a, a sort of acceptable level of reliability during those w- winter months uh, is prohibitively uh, costly. Uh, now, if you were to build a new house in a remote area, it would probably be cheaper to go off-grid there than to build the power line. So in, in cases where you're a new build, there's some good use cases. The second point, which I think uh, expands on, on John's point, is that the um, the uh, the net energy production of a system that's big enough to, to take you through the winter months means that there'll be a lot of times where you'll you'll have a, a surplus of energy that you can't store. And then being connected to the grid gives you a, the ability to generate some value from, you know, a, 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 as, as discussed, putting it back into the grid. So, yeah, the use cases of actually being off grid are, are not great at the moment, that might change, but we certainly don't see it as a, uh, as a significant risk that will that we'll grow exponentially, put it that way.
3: Right, Meryn, do you want to? No, I'll just reinforce what Rob said. Um, for remote areas, edge of grid, you know, some of the distances in Queensland, if I just think about Queensland, you know, some of the distances are people are a long way from the main grid. So, we and where there isn't already infrastructure. Yep. So, if you're trying to get an electricity supply in a new place that's a long way from the existing grid, it probably does make sense. But it's not, it's not necessarily the same cost as connecting to the grid if you're close. So, it, you really have to work out your economics um, and size your batteries and yep. your solar panels and everything else for the conditions that you have and that may make it less cost effective down here in victoria where it's not as sunny as it is up in queensland
0: okay uh yes uh hi Maren. um i have a lot of sympathy for the forecasting challenges that you went through Um, i lived in queensland during that period i remember the blackouts Uh, but i guess if you accept that forecasting was um, over-eager compared to what was happened, and so the end grid is larger than it would have been. Um, the network is larger. Um, I guess I'd like your comments on why customers should continue to pay for that. Um, Blockbuster also heavily invested during that period, and their customers certainly are not required to pay for their overinvestment in the past. Is there something in the funding mechanisms that you have that justify why customers should continue to pay for that?
3: Yeah, and look, that's a fantastic question, and and thank you for that. Um, So the way the um, regulatory framework uh, worked at that time and still works today, um, it's a regulatory compact. So the uh, investment arrangement and the rate of return that's set uh, and the way in which that's uh, determined go together so if you, um, if there's no risk of uh, write-down in the regulatory compact, then the WAC is set on the same basis. And that's been uh, acknowledged by a number of parties, um, the AER, um, the ACCC, um, the AEMC, everybody acknowledges that that is the current regulatory compact. So we invested on the basis of um, a lock-in and roll-forward arrangement, um, and so those investments are linked to that regulatory compact that sets, is set at the time. Now, I think to the one of the points that um, David made, we do have to examine whether that is the appropriately appropriate regulatory compact for the future. And it may be that the uh, external environment or other things that are changing more rapidly, um, to John's point, it, it is accelerating. We know that. You know, it's the old saying that, you know, it's never changed as quickly as it does today, but it's never this is the slowest it's ever going to change. Mm, but of course right. the question is why should the customer pay? Because the regulatory compact um, was set and determined on that basis and if you want to have a different regulatory compact, then the businesses have to be rewarded in a different way.
4: Can can I add just to, to add to that point. I think there's sort of almost two choices you have and, and, and it's looking at what is the lowest cost for the consumer or the customer over the lifetime of the asset, and so, on the one hand, you'd have a, a situation where the owner uh, would ha- take the risk of an asset becoming redundant, and and that asset being written down or or, or wiped out or, or wiped off the books. Now, in that situation, the the cost uh, of funding that asset is markedly different, as Merin says, and on the counterfactual, you have. Where you have an investor with the certainty, the cost of funding is lower. Now, there's been a lot of work that's gone in to say what's the best outcome for a consumer? Is it a higher cost of capital and risk for the equity holder, or is it a lower cost of capital and no risk for the equity holder? Now, I suppose universally in, in, in the UK and here and, and other jurisdictions, the view's been that the, the certainty for the investor, low cost of capital, gives the consumer a better outcome. Uh, but as merrin says, that, that I think that it's worthwhile us as a, an industry and, a, and, a, and the regulatory community coming back to that question occasionally to make sure that's still the right outcome for a customer. Mm.
0: Anyone, anyone else on the panel before we... Uh,
2: I, mean, I mean, the only way that I'd, I'd explain the regulatory compact is that effectively the, you as the consumer, through governments and the AAR, basically agreed with the network businesses that we would fund them this amount of investment, And we would guarantee them that they would get that money back, and we guaranteed them because of that guarantee that they would also get a return on that. So we could get, let's just call it profit. And because it was a guarantee, that amount of profit that they received was relatively low compared to the amount of profit that they would have to receive if they were to risk not getting their money back. And so the argument on behalf of the network businesses is actually it's cheaper to do... Sorry, not necessarily. The argument has been is it's cheaper to do it that way than impose risk on the businesses and pay them more profit, which is kind of the easy way. Now, there are differing points of view on that. We would argue, and we do in the paper, that going forward, there are existential risks to these things. And there are risks that has got nothing to do with consumers, nothing to, do with, you know, there are new technologies, there are changes that are coming. Is it fair that the consumers, basically on, Decisions made between, well, decisions made between businesses and the AAR, should consumers bear all the risk of those assets not being used in the future? And we, we argue in our paper that actually it would be fair that that's shared. We understand that the return that network businesses would receive would have to be higher to reflect the fact that there are greater risks, But we also understand that that would then put an alternative incentive on the network businesses around the efficient spend of capital when we live in an uncertain future and don't know whether or not these infrastructures are actually going to be needed in the future.
0: Okay, I've got a question right up the the back there, and then we'll come back this way. Okay.
7: The way that David began the talk showed a difference between the states and the way they responded to some of these things. Victoria had its share of fires, Victoria had its share of um, electricity companies being sued for damages because of fires and whatnot, but Victoria doesn't seem to have overspent like the other states. Is there something... Is there some sort of border that sort of says the regulations within one state are different to the regulations in another state? The approvals for what capacity? I mean just looking at that and I don't know how the system works but it looked to me like New South Wales was saying well look if we increase our generating capacity enough we can sell electricity into the other states um, and that might make New South Wales generators better off Um, I just don't understand why it is that some states increased their generating and distribution capacity and safety factors so much more than other states
3: I can tackle that from Queensland's perspective, because I should only talk about Queensland. Um, so I think, um, and it is kind of discussed in the paper, that we're not at a common starting point. So uh, the initial year, which is 2000...
2: And, Queensland is
3: 2004-05. Yeah, so if you looked across the jurisdictions at that time... Um, that it's not that they've, that we've started from a common um, position in terms of the amount of network that's servicing the load, or the relationship between how much network's there and how much load has to be serviced. Um, and as I mentioned before, what they found when they uh, out of the government inquiry in 2004 was that Queenslanders were experiencing outages twice as long as other jurisdictions. Their level of reliability was just a much lower level. So I think. That drives to that there's been underinvestment in Queensland relative to other jurisdictions, and so there's a degree of catch-up. Now the uh, the paper tried to assess whether the resultant um, investment was was all efficient, and David concluded David and his team concluded that it wasn't. Um, but certainly um, from our perspective, you know we invested in um, the infrastructure that was set by um, the government in terms of the reliability standards. We did that efficiently. We compared options. We went through all of the regulatory processes that are safeguards on making sure that we compare network solutions with non-network solutions that were available at the time. Um, We outsource uh, all of our infrastructure procurement in the same way as every other business outsources. Um, So we do have some tyranny of distance. So we are a Um, a relatively sparsely populated, um, large geographic area. So it's actually as far from Brisbane to Cairns as it is from Brisbane to Melbourne. And that will obviously drive some different costs in terms of servicing a smaller load. So I think from my perspective, um, we tried to meet the reliability standards as efficiently as we could um, given the reliability standards that were given to us.
0: Okay. But David, you also make the point, do you not, that you feel that it was the, the publicly owned assets that have been more profligate as opposed to the privately owned, which is the case in Victoria.
2: Yeah, I mean, again, I, one of the downsides of having 10 minutes to speak is there's a lot of nuance in the paper that you don't get a chance to, to kind of talk about. And one of the, the simple distinctions that we do raise is that we've seen a clear difference in performance between the publicly owned assets and the privately owned assets. I think coming back to the point that those reliability standards are important in the fact that you did see with New South Wales and Queensland, specific instructions given to, basically specific instructions given to the network businesses to spend for a specific reason, which weren't in the case in Victoria. Now, in Victoria, and I'm gonna take the the case of AusNet and Power who were the rural ones that had to respond to some of those buyer issues. And so obviously they also had requirements on them to spend additional capital expenditure at the same time. But what we saw with the privately owned businesses, and this is in response to that forecast demand, is when that forecast demand didn't actually appear to occur, what we saw was a drop-off in capital spend on behalf of the privately-owned businesses, and that drop-off didn't appear to occur in the publicly-owned businesses. Now, that, that is what we kind of saw through the period of time. Merrin has a point about Queensland because of the data and because there was a recalibration of the RAB around 2004-05. We have been unable to go back before 2004-05 to do this analysis for Queensland. With all of the other states, we went back over as long a period as we possibly could to try and capture as much of that lumpiness that you get in terms of spend. Um, and what we will say about Queensland is we have a greater range over which that write-down occurred because of that period, that shortened period that we had in the Okay, so I just okay.
4: To and I know we've
0: got a lady here, and then we'll just give the microphone to her. Thank you.
7: Uh, I wonder if anybody has looked at the scenario that instead of putting battery in people's home because of PV, set a net metering agreement. Uh, it means people can send electricity during the day to the grid and then get the electricity from grid at night, and if any storage is required, happen in... Utility at scale. I mean, which one is cheaper regarding the direct and external costs?
5: So it would probably—I'm sure you guys have looked at it as well. But you know, that's what I was sort of arguing for—that um, if if networks were able to be able to have more interface with customers, then a much more economic way of putting storage into the grid and across the grid, which would probably ultimately boost. Bolster grid resilience more than having it in everyone's house would be to have, um, you know, whether it's a 100 kilowatts here and there or a megawatt here or there, but have it distributed and have it controlled and have microgrids set up around it so that they can what's called island and protect that group of households that are connected in that way. And network's the best place to do that. Um, so it would probably be much more efficient, but it wouldn't be too many more years in my view before batteries for households will be competitive with that anyway.
4: Look, I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a great point and I think the, the industry is looking at that. Um, again, as I said earlier, it, the, the, if you share infrastructure, the amount of infrastructure you need per person is, is, is lower. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we know that if you have a battery that wants to, to serve 100 people, uh, you, you can size that as if you were serve, serving 50 or 60. You know, you've know, you got that that ability to, to benefit from different coincidences of, of, of when people are using and storing. Uh, we also know that people uh, want to get more involved with, not everyone, but some people want to get more involved in their energy provision. And, and so the concept of a community battery or where you can invest in the battery or you can pay for, for access to a battery and it being, being there, a physical asset, is attractive to people. And we look at people... Uh, uh, businesses uh, in, in in Europe who are doing just this, trying to bring that community element to infrastructure and allowing people to invest in, in the infrastructure themselves. And, and actually, AusNet's been been quite a leader in that here in Victoria, and a, a lot of respect for the work that they've been doing on that sort of stuff.
0: OK. So, gentleman over here. Yeah.
5: Uh, my name is Hugo Armstrong. I work at Osnet uh, Services, so thanks for the plug, Rob. Um,
6: this might possibly be the last question. I don't know, Maxine, so I'll ask a, I've got a couple in mind, but I'll ask a statesman like one. Um, that is the National Energy Guarantee, uh, which is going to COAG next week for discussions, and no doubt they'll be referred off for further research, but we may see some sort of a step forward. Uh, that uses retailers as its primary. Vehicle perhaps I could say in, in terms of the industry structure, I wonder if all the panel could comment on whether they see that insofar as we know about it at the moment and you know we always everything's prefaced with the devil is in the detail uh, but will that contribute or drive and if so how to more sustainable electricity networks in Australia in the future
0: okay can um, I ask everyone to do it pretty quickly if you could because I'd like to get one more in.
3: Uh...
0: Hopes for the NEG. Hopes for
3: the NEG. I
2: mean, I'm like, a more stable climate change and energy policy is obviously be going to be good. I think fundamental challenges facing the, the grid, though, go far beyond what the NEG is going to be able to do and deliver. Um, I think that there are more important things in terms of making those efficient investments. I mean, if the NEG is successful and we get a process by which we have a stable environment where there's stable generation, I can see that that will allow more stable investment yeah. by the networks going forward, particularly the transmission networks. But beyond that, I think that there's an awful lot of other work in other areas that needs to be
4: done. Okay, Mary? I agree. Yep, thank Right, Rob. We've all got an accountability at the moment to, to do our bit for affordability. Um, I think that one thing we do know is an absence of energy policy is more expensive and more costly than, than almost any policy. Um, so, uh, you know, for me, we're supportive of anything that gives some certainty, and anything that, that, across the industry, in any sector of the industry, delivers price relief to, relief to customers, because that's really what all of our focus has to be on at the moment.
0: Yeah, Andrew, can I ask you? I mean, I, I'm just wondering if we think um, it just might be if we get it get it in place and the states agree. Is it, is it perhaps the beginning of a circuit breaker, not the circuit breaker, but I mean, you talked about the importance on the retail side, getting more players in and all the rest of it. I mean, breaking up this cosy well, arrangement
3: if, we've
5: got. If you want a cosy arrangement between retailers, and I'm not suggesting that's what the case is, but because that might be a little step too far, that implies they collude, I'm not suggesting that. But certainly we don't have a lot of retail competition as evidenced by the margins in the retail business. The retailers, which are primarily gen tailors today, they control generation, they control retail. Right? Those guys, between them, have they dominate the retail marketplace? They dominate the buying of RETs under the um, renewable energy scheme that's been underway. You don't pay what they pay when they buy retail certificates for RETs, and I've got no no doubt. That going forward, under the consumers will not pay what they pay when they buy reliability, um, because they have so much control of the market. So if you put the buying power with the people that have already got a lot of control of the market, um, then I don't think it's going to be too great for consumers, frankly.
0: Okay, I'm going to the last question to the man in the middle there with the with the beard. You've had your hand up for quite a while. The microphone coming to you, and this will be the last one. If you would, thank you.
8: Thank you very much. It's very kind. Uh, My name is Doug Cook. I work for a little company called GreenSync that was kindly mentioned earlier today. I'm specifically very involved in the distributed energy exchange or DEX project that was also referenced. Again, many thanks. Um, I was curious to ask the panel, if I may, what percentage of investment they think will come from consumers, i.e., will be behind the meter assets that the consumers are buying for themselves versus potentially investments in link 2 or community embedded microgrids and so on because we think that customers are more likely to be investing in those assets themselves and are already doing so uh, as you pointed out Andrew um, and so we're curious to hear.
0: Yeah over what report. particular period of time do you think over the next three years five years is that what?
8: Um, maybe if we started with the coming 10 years okay. which is a very short uh, time frame with regards to a, a, a transmission or distribution network asset.
0: Okay. Let's what what if they gather?
6: I
8: don't what know. Percent? I'm just pulling a number out of the air, right? It would be at least half. Really? Seven thousand
5: megawatts at mm, a domestic system is around just trying to think of to me, two or three thousand dollars a kilowatt from memory, maybe a bit less than that these days.
0: So, so half generation coming from consumers. That's somewhere between
5: 7 and $10 billion that's been invested by one and a half, 1.7 million households over the last you know, decade and a half. So if you're looking forward a decade and you think batteries are going to go where PV went um, and is continuing to go, um, it's not a bad guess, $10 billion And what, David, was the investment by networks in the last 10 or 15 years?
2: So over that 10 years in the infrastructure it was an additional $50 billion. It's
4: probably more than that because some of that would be additional
5: 50. So maybe 20
0: or 30%. Okay, what, what sums are you guys doing? <laughs> uh, uh,
4: look, I'll, I, I, I'm not as optimistic in terms of the, the amount of distributed uh, energy resources. I think if we get our... Uh, just going back to the, the fundamentals, I think utility scale is three to four times cheaper than than distributed. So I think if we've got 50% of our generation fleet going into things that are three to four times more expensive, we've we've made some mistakes. So look, I, I just think we need to be investing in the cheapest, the most efficient, and the greenest forms of generation. I think for me, my view is that 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 there'll be a, still a bigger role for utility scale generation. Uh, than there is for distributed, but uh, jury's out, so who knows?
0: Okay, uh,
3: Mary? Um, so if I reflect on Queensland, we've already, so our peak demand, say it's close to 10,000 um, megawatts, we've already got 1.3 gigawatts of rooftop solar um, supplying that um, peak demand, so that grows at about 35 megawatts a month. Um, and it's it's probably accelerating with um, commercial, industrial premises jumping in. So I think, you know, if you, if you take 10 years, I can't do the maths in my head, but 35 megawatts times 12 months times 10 years, you know, that's going to be a substantial part of what's available. Is it going to be supplying peak demand at the time the peak happens? Probably not. Um, but I think, you know, the future of um, the power system, and I, I I stop calling it a grid because we can't think of it as a grid. It's actually going to be an integrated um, power system, like a little ecosystem of all the different bits and pieces. So I think our future is very different to our past, and we see that with the changing demographics. So I think it'll be a whole range of things. There will be more transmission investment. There'll be large-scale generation investment. Most of that will probably be renewable, certainly in Queensland, 30 30, more than 30,000 megawatts of inquiries in Queensland, in case anybody's interested on a 10,000 megawatt system. Anyway, i uh, <laughs> not sure how that adds up. So I think it will be a whole range of things that actually deliver uh, electricity supply to consumers in the future.
0: OK, so I think we can all agree we are looking at a reconfigured uh, grid power system. OK, look, on that note, I am going to ask you to thank our panellists. To you for, again, uh, being being coming out tonight in such numbers and for your most considered questions, and uh, to our hosts tonight, the Grattan Institute, for another very good comprehensive report in this series and to the Melbourne Energy Institute. Thanks so much. Have a good evening.